Welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. On this episode, we have one of our ambassadors, Alex Friedman, who is a strength and conditioning coach currently out in Colorado. Uh, we talk a lot about just what Alex has been up to, but also in that, um, his experience at the UFC training facility in Vegas, I would say probably the mecca of combat sports training. And so we really get into what the nuts and bolts of that looked like and what they are doing for their fighters and it's really impressive and admirable for what they are trying to do to help the sport and advance everything with the fighting and the training the nutrition the mindset and all of that so really fascinating episode when it comes to that and we hope you enjoy Well, welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. Today we are on with Alex Friedman, who is one of our <laughs> Clinically Pressed ambassadors that we really haven't done anything with. Um, right. That might be a whole other conversation for another day. But anyway, um, in the midst of all of the craziness, uh, Alex and I are catching up as he reached out, which I appreciate because I'm terrible at it. But in the process, we wanted to get a little conversation going about uh, what Alex has been up to because it's been unique, and that is mainly looking at how he's gone from a collegiate wrestler, so a version, um, a section of combat athlete, to now he's working uh, on a, his thesis, I believe is the best yeah. way to say it, um, yeah. around hydration and weight cutting and all of the things uh, that go into that, plus uh, some of the other stuff he's done, mainly the one I really want to hear about is his time at the USC Training Center in Vegas, because uh, I do remember you telling me about the interview process and that they held nothing back in challenging you on the science and everything to make sure you knew what you were talking about. So uh, with that, I guess maybe let's start with just a little bit of your background in being you know a high level wrestler to kind of where you're at, at currently and we'll go from there well first off th thank you for saying high level wrestler i don't know that that's completely accurate <laughs> i don't know man anytime you can be competing towards the national level at any division in college you're you're doing all right so uh so yeah so i started at uwl um collegiate athlete and then through there i found the exercise science program and buddied up with Joel and we started uh, working on an internship with the sports performance center there and things like that. And that really kind of springboarded my interest into strength and conditioning and coaching and uh, you know, what, what that means or how I can best help athletes um, as I go forward. And through that, I applied to different internships, um, looked at different routes of strength and conditioning or sports performance and in route to help people. And then, I found the University of Denver where I spent a year being a fellow as well as enrolled in their um, graduate program, which is a master's of the arts in sport coaching. And so going through that program, I've learned a lot about coaching, um, coach research, um, and different approaches that 
um, highlight and kind of accent the physical sciences that we all kind of live and die by. Um, so through that Masters of the Arts program, I've been able to kind of reorient myself um, looking at research, looking at coaching practices, looking at different, you know, healthcare methods that we employ around athletes and around athlete care. Um, yeah, and then after that year kind of came up, still in the program, finishing up, but then I was applying to different um, experiences, different internships, trying to kind of broaden my um, experience and having a wrestling background and still being very uh, curious and involved in the sport. I looked at the UFC um, Performance Institute in Las Vegas, and they were they're a center that acts as an open resource to all UFC athletes. So if you're a UFC athlete, have a contract, you can come there to train, get diagnostic testing, um, PT resources, and just holistic care as far as nutrition, strength and conditioning, um, exercise science, physical therapy, and different things in that regard, which is a huge benefit to their athletes. And um, so, yeah, so I applied for their strength and conditioning internship and then I applied three or four times, uh, to be honest. So hey, um, there's nothing wrong with that persistence. Yep. So I made a contact through the University of Colorado, um, who knew the people there and got an interview. Um, and that kind of as Joel uh, preluded, they they hammered me pretty good on the interview. They had a lot of, um, I think, high expectations from their interns, or whether it was combat experience, strength conditioning experience strength and conditioning with combat weight class athletes experience. Um, and so I kind of checked all those boxes and then um, performed at the interview. And so they, they gave me a shot and ended up being an awesome experience. They got a ton of really good, uh, really good people there, really good educators as well as practitioners. Um, so while I was there, I learned a lot and formed my thesis or my research project um, that I will be finishing uh, with my graduate studies. Um, and that is centered around rapid weight loss, cutting weight um, techniques, and kind of an overarching look into the culture that is wrestling and that is cutting weight. Um, so it's going to be more through a sociological lens where I'm writing an autoethnography, so an ethnography about my experiences where I view cutting weight and view wrestling through a few different lenses. I provide my narrative of my cutting weight story and my um, kind of career as it led up to that, what my values were, what drove me to those, and, and again, kind of the, the culture of cutting weight and of wrestling. And then I look back at it from a strength and conditioning and a healthcare practitioner role and see how and where those, um, those, support systems could have performed or failed to perform or what happened in that regard. And then I finally analyze it through a coach researcher perspective, a coach researcher lens. And we look at theories and different um, ways that we can tie theory into the practice that goes in with the culture of wrestling and things that go along with that. So in a nutshell, that's where I am. Interesting that you're going on as a qualitative. Um, that yes. would be, really interesting and i only happen to know that because i've just finished a qualitative research course um earlier this year so um i want to get more into the weight cutting and stuff uh that's one uh, i've had a lot of conversations about here i think you and i have talked about it i've talked to soon to be dr Tuhe, um 
about it. Um, but we'll we'll come back to that on just like yeah. the approaches with it. But I really want to hear more about like the UFC training center. Um, yeah. This whole podcast got started around you know it was myself as an athletic trainer slash pretend strength coach, um, a PhD in Dr. Jagum, and then um, a chiropractor in Dr. Kyle. And we always believed in kind of the collaborative care model. Um, we're big fans of Exos and how they do it. Um, I just got done reading, which I would highly recommend, even if you aren't a healthcare practitioner, um, Bridging the gap um, from rehab to performance, Sue Falsoni, um, who was at Exos and was one of the first—I think she was the first female head athletic trainer in Major League Baseball. Okay. Um, but just talked about like the importance of like having common language, and so her and the strength coach could go back and forth at Exos, and instead of being like every specific exercise, yes or no, the strength coach could sit there and be like, "Can they?" push vertically can they pull vertically and if she said no then they automatically knew all the exercises that eliminated and so it didn't have to be an exercise by exercise thing but because they had the common language so long story short in all of this um what did you see at the ufc um training center in that regard because if it is fully you know you can come here and you can get all of the things you started listing you know, how did that work and what did you take away from that? Yeah, man, it was, it blew me away because, you know, it, and I was fortunate enough to be exposed to it at UWL with, you know, a merriment, however, however it may have happened through um, athletic training and strength conditioning or sports performance. Not Um, quite as refined as we'd like it, (laughs) but everybody talked to each other and nobody seemed to get overly upset with one another. So yeah, the relationship was there and and it was, it was functioning. And then, Go moving on to University of Denver and my experience, you know, being a fellow there, they had a hugely integrated system through their athletic training and sports performance. And, um, and that was a huge priority among the staff. And uh, so it, it was a big kind of kudos to their program that they're able to accomplish that in a collegiate setting, which is very hard to accomplish. Um, at the UFC, it was, you know, full tilt integrated system collaboration all the time everywhere and that was that was one of the things that again blew me away when I got there it was it was not what do we consider for this guy strength and conditioning or this athlete for strength and conditioning it was where are they at with their weight cut where are they at you know in their health and diagnostics do they have a fight coming up and, and how can we integrate that and provide a whole package for an athlete rather than this one isolated resource um, and going from that, talking to, you know, the mentors there, shout out to the strength conditioning staff, uh, Bo Sandoval, Matt Crawley, and Kyle Larimer. Uh, they helped me out a lot in understanding how you move forward professionally in that setting. Um, but it was really well organized, and Bo was probably one of the guys that talked to me the most about this because everybody shared a collaborative space. You know, it wasn't like strength coaches live in this weight room with their offices there, ATs over here in that area, and then nutrition and dietetics has, you know, classrooms. It was uh, one office unit with all the exercise science, um, health diagnostic people in there. And then when they kind of split up or every week we had two team meetings, every 
time we were in the office, everybody was talking. Um, and the logistics of that kind of led into the collaborative approach and allowed, allowed the collaboration to happen on a much higher frequency, but at a much higher performance as well. Um, so typically what it looked like if you're a incoming UFC athlete, if you want to schedule a visit to the UFC PI or you want to, you know, utilize some benefits for physical therapy, you know, you might come there because you need physical therapy or rehab on a hand or on a knee or something like that. You utilize that resource. But what we can do when you come in is we can utilize our staff to schedule out strength and conditioning sessions, schedule out exercise science consultations, schedule out dietetics, and then on your way out, we can have a cumulative meeting of all the resources that you had and how we can integrate that into a program or the information that the athlete or the coaches need coming out of that. So, um, like I said, every week we talked about all the incoming athletes. We talked about how we can best serve them and, uh, and then really offer the best strategies on all fronts in a holistic view rather than provide a strength conditioning program provide a nutritional program in, in separate silos, I guess. How did that go? Like, did, did everybody kind of stay in their lane for lack of a better description? I use that in quotes. And I guess the example, the example is like, you know, ATs can get CSCS certified, which is great. I don't know that it always means everything that it could. Right. Um, so they might have an input into a strength and conditioning program or anybody, AT, strength coach or otherwise, because nutrition is such a hot topic. I, I would almost hate to be a registered dietitian sometimes because everybody sees the next headline and thinks they understand nutrition. You know, yeah. there's so many things out there um, with that. Like, how did you see, you know, from your point of view in that, like, how did that work? Did people throw out ideas to each other about that, where there was this kind of understanding that it's never necessarily a challenge. It's more of just like, just throwing this out there kind of a deal. And then you kind of rely on the expertise or did that just kind of not happen? Yeah. No. You just understood that everybody was really good at what they do. So you're trusting that they're going to be on the forefront of anything and everything anyway. No. Yeah. I think there, there's definitely a level of trust and level of communication that go into that. Um, where everybody shined was, you know, in their specific discipline and, and training conditioning or whatever. And you trust in that they're going to perform their function really well. Um, and that's, um, again, that's a huge, trust thing that's a huge communication thing but there were these macro meetings where we all met and talked about athletes but then there, there's these micro transactions and micro meetings you know it's like i had this athlete at 10 for physical therapy i see you have him at two for strength and conditioning here's what we covered here's how this happened you know and then and there's you know this athlete has this nutritional strategy i as a strength and conditioning coach go to the nutrition team I see that she hasn't eaten carbs today all day. She's got an intense workout. Maybe we can change that strategy next week or we change that right now at this point. And just different microtransactions like that and different respecting, I don't want to say barriers, but respecting expertise, like you said, mm -hmm. um, and understanding that everybody's on the same path to offer the athlete the a maximal healthcare performance benefit. You know, there's um, 
everybody's leading to the same kind of road and everybody's on the same team. So there's not really room for, you know, egos or this or that, or I know this better or whatever. There's, there's just one collaboration. There's not, um, different services. Gotcha. Um, sports science wise, just super curious. What, what were some of the go-tos or if they did, um, specifically with combat athletes, um, in the whole context man yeah so that was huge there um i know they operated similarly with the performance team and the exercise sciences you know the olympic training center did um but go-to's for sports science is as many people as we could onboard onto omega wave um, okay and got a lot of diagnostic information or i guess observational information from there sure. um and then as we went through, as we introduced athletes, we had everybody go through, you know, diagnostic screening. Um, not necessarily, you know, like a one rep max or anything, but a strength conditioning protocol, a nutrition assessment, a physical therapy assessment. And through all of those batteries of tests um, that, you know, utilized uh, watt bikes, polar pros, um, we did VO2 maxes, we did um, just a lot of different performance measures or just measures to see where an athlete's at so that we can meet them there. Um, and again, there was excellent sports scientist, Roman Foman there who, um, di um, digested all the information, you know, accumulated it together and, and was able to read that data and give it back to the athlete in an understandable, um, context, but also provide it to the team so that we, knew what we could do with it. As much as strength and conditioning was in charge of our own diagnostics and our own tests, it's one piece of the picture for the whole yep. profile. So it was, uh, again, a collaboration. Love it. Yeah. So it was, and the sports science was, was very advanced. Um, when I was there, they were looking at, at things like different, you know, neural technologies and neural mapping stuff that they can move forward with from that. And I think that was the next thing on their horizon, you know, cognitive based training, things like sure. that. Um, but what I got from it was you're using the technology to your advantage and you still need an expert to analyze all the tools. Oh, agreed. Yeah. It's one of those, it's, there's a lot of things around it, you know, like stupid, you know, not stupid sayings, but little sayings of like, you know, what gets measured gets accomplished. Um, you, you got to know where you started to know where you, you know, where you've been to know where you're going type of a deal. So like, you know, you don't really know if you're doing anything, if you don't have the numbers to back it up, well then that is only as good as how you use it. Yeah. Like you guys could run, they could run all those tests and it just sits there, but if it's never put back into seemingly the clinical or the practical setting, then what's the freaking point? Like, that's awesome. You got data, you know, right. maybe you can go back and find stuff and there's a time and a place for that type of stuff. But yeah, that's awesome that it is utilized. Not that it's shocking that it was, but. Right. And like you said, um, those kind of small little sayings, it's funny. Uh, Duncan French is the uh, vice president of performance there. So he yep. oversees the whole collaborative team. Um, and one of the comments or quotes he, he said, he's like, if you're not assessing, you're guessing. Yeah, so, that's, yep, that's another one. I like that and, one. And so, like, as much as it is, we need to understand where each athlete is at. We need to use the, the 
data or the the relationship we have in a meaningful way and how do you assign meaning to those data is through expertise and experience and knowledge around performance around health around you know every discipline that you have that goes towards those things for sure i know we're gonna we talked about this off camera so we won't give too much we're gonna try and do another one specifically around the training um so we won't get too far into that but before we transition over to kind of more of what you're doing with the weight cutting yeah um, anything else ufc experience wise that you wanted to cover you mentioned when we were just off camera um the communication and the interaction was maybe different than what it the what you've had experienced in the collegiate world um i I, my mind wanders as to what that might be but i'll let you (laughs) fill it in all right it's hugely interesting to me especially my code my studies you know on the qualitative end of coaching you know looking at different athlete relationships and how power dynamics operate in, in this you know, society that we have or in this specific um, culture or specific area that you're working. Interesting. Uh, we may need to talk about that because <laughs> for my dissertation, I've got something very similar in mind. Okay. Um, yeah, we can expand on that. But um, the, so first off with the frameworks that I'm kind of comparing is, you know, collegiate student athlete that has a coach that um, is accountable and is uh, responsible to follow that coach and, and, and more or less um, the coach wields the, the power in the relationship, right? Whereas at the UFC, each athlete is an independent contractor that contracts with the UFC and we're providing this service back to the athletes. So, and I, I found this a little bit, again, in training, you know, I had some experience tr- getting to train professional hockey athletes at the University of Denver and things like this. The relationship is different in those, in those senses, whereas it's not um, as power laden, it can be a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more um, communicated, I guess, rather than mm-hmm. you're on this strict schedule of I have to get this done and we need to be right. Type of thing, um, but at the UFC, it was it was a mutual relationship where you know I'm offering a expert service to you, and you're understanding the value of that, um, or we can communicate to you the value of that. And the athletes were above and beyond grateful for everything that that um, we could provide to them. And then on the flip side of that, we were there to offer the best services possible that we could. So. It was just a different level of communication rather than, you know, you see, I don't know if you watch the college game day special on strength coaches, but um, I can send you that link later. But yeah, please do. Provides just a, a scary overbearing picture of a strength coach that all he does is yell and demand more from the weight room, right? Um, where that, that setting was not present in, at the UFC Performance Institute. Interesting. It was a relationship and a mutual growth. It wasn't a, you know, a follow these orders, do this type of thing. Um, so, and huh. it wouldn't have worked if it was a, a commanding style of relationship. So, um, so looking at that is very interesting and, and breaking down strength and conditioning into, you know, how it's came out um, or how the professional has evolved. It's uh, hugely interesting to see 
it grow into what it is and, and different power dynamics that go along with that. Sorry, said a lot, but didn't say a lot. I know. No, no, it's good. Uh, uh, kind of, you know, I wonder, so you were a division three athlete. That's currently where I work at um, where, you know, it's, there's no scholarships. Right. And so they're doing it, you know, athletes are doing it for, you know, for the love of the sport because you, you, you're doing it cause you want to, you know, or you're even yeah. actually paying to do it to continue your career. So in some form or fashion, you're getting a little bit more buy-in to some degree because they're doing it. But at the same time, there's nothing holding anybody's feet to the fire. Cause if you want to be done, like there's nothing holding you to that right. in division one. I think you get a lot of people that are hoping to go to that next level and there could be a scholarship tied to it. So sometimes yeah. you'll get a little bit more of that in there, but then you still are dealing with 18 to 22 year olds and you know, some right. of them don't really want to do it, but they're on scholarship. So why wouldn't they continue to do it? And I wonder when, if there's a transition where, you know, especially for those UFC guys, like that's a tremendous service for the UFC to provide, but like, that's like, that is that guy's, you know, life. Like that is his income. Yeah. That is his livelihood. And I could see where you could, that's awesome that it's a mutual respect. Cause I could see it going the other way where, you know, the athlete would almost demand it because you are there serving them. But right you know, if they're not necessarily paying you that group directly, mm-hmm. you know, or it's not like you are an independent contractor and they come to you and say, you know, right. I'm going to pay you 10 grand to train me. Well, now you're at their beck and call yeah, because of that. Of I think that's a really unique, almost it's a unique business model, which is awesome, but it yeah. also kind of creates that where, you know, obviously as a staff, you want to do a really good job because you want a job. Right. <laughs> You want people there, but for those guys, when it's not coming strictly out of their pocket, per se, yeah, they don't really have anything to stand on that you know you uh, that those staff could call them out and just be like, dude, you're full of crap. Like, right. get out of here. You're like you're a, you're a headache to us. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too. Like you huh. said, you mentioned that it's a it's an interesting you know structure, an interesting you know organization for a business and. I can speak a little bit to the motivations of why the UFC is committing this multi-million dollar facility and these expert level um, practitioners to for a free service for the UFC fighter. Um, and one is to reduce the amount of canceled fight due to injury, sure. right? That's the yeah. money loss. And then reduce the amount of athletes missing weight because that is – I don't want to say commonplace, but that's been a a reoccurring issue for uh, UFC athletes. And so, and since the implementation of the UFC PI, and there's no direct studies that correlate or cause, um, but there's been a lot less injury cancellations of fight and a lot less athletes missing weight. And, uh, and so that was part of the motivation is the ability to keep fighters on the card and keep, uh, the money growing potential of the, the fight to happen. And then the UFC is almost at a point where they've overtaken the combat sport um, realm. They're the premier professional organization for combat sports. Um, and they, again, they've endeavored through a couple different competitors to do that. Um, 
if you're around the combat world, you know, like Bellator and uh, any different mm-hmm. professional organizations in that realm, the UFC got to a point where their best way to grow as a organization is to grow the sport of mixed martial arts and to promote that combat athlete culture around the world. And so that was part of the motivation into building another UFC performance institute in Shanghai, which they opened a year or two ago. Um, so that's another part of their kind of strategy or scheme into why you would provide this resource to the UFC fighters and individual contractors. Makes sense. So, so, but, but yeah, it was, it was a great experience, both seeing the interaction and relationships between professionals and between an interdisciplinary team, but also a coach athlete relationship that is, from my experience, very atypical um, in that setting. So um, I learned a lot as far as, you know, what interacting with athletes means and how you can perceive that differently um, and how you as a coach can influence that um, the values or influence the, the quote unquote want to be there. Like you say, you know, you have division one athletes that may not ever want to do strength and conditioning, but what can I do as a practitioner to create value into the strength and conditioning? Or what can I do as a coach to help this athlete understand the value of the services provided, you know? And so sure. just flipping the script a little bit. Yeah. Um, jumping into, um, your thesis, um, without you having to go through the whole process of it, uh, you were talking a little bit about like the evolution of it, um, Mm -hmm. over the past almost 90 years, it sounds like you had kind of referenced the first study you had seen. Yeah. Um, And in that regard, probably not that much changing over the time, I'm sure there's been some ebbs and flows where people tried to go about it. Um, it's very different. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you talk UFC, you get, these guys have weeks and months to, you know, drop weight. Whereas um, wrestlers, you know, you're kind of in a perpetual state of it yeah. throughout your season um, just because, you know, matches are once or twice a week and so on and so forth. And yeah. I know for me, and this is easier said, easy, way easier said than done. Just looking at it, you know, a couple prime examples is, you know, if you can fuel yourself with better fuel, some of the issues that people were having in terms of weight cutting would go down. But I know that is so simple to say, especially yeah. to a college kid. Um, yeah. So kind of on that, you know, thoughts on like why this is important. Um, for reasons that are maybe obvious or may not. And then also, you know, what do you think it's going to take to potentially have a culture or a mindset change? Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a lot to chew on there. Um, Yeah. I know. I like to ask those kind of questions and I just get to sit and listen. Yeah. Right. Um, So, yeah. So I'll start first with kind of the research and where, that's been at a disconnect with the practice, right? Um, so like you said, as I've been researching and kind of reviewing, I've found articles as early as, you know, 1930s that point out a problem of athletes, tra- wrestling, tra- wrestlers trying to make weight for competition. 
and you know how that has presented a problem in performance, but also prevented presented a problem in just athlete care in general. Um, and since then, you know, research and you know, quantitative as well as qualitative, mostly quantitative studies have have looked into health risks, you know, prevalences, um, and different indicators of why rapid weight loss strategies and techniques are um, decrements to performance, decrements to uh, mental health, decrements to um, like continue to su sustain success. And, um, and so while there have been, you know, small and in, in my, I guess in my research opinion, insignificant links to competitive success, um, cutting weight has overall just been painted in, you know, quantitative research as a negative thing. You know, every research article that every review of literature comes to the conclusion of athletes should avoid rapid weight loss strategies. Athletes consult a physician or a, or a dietitian about rapid weight loss techniques and and in many senses, that can be somewhat mitigated by conduct or consulting a physician and a dietitian. The overall conclusion from literature is avoid these rapid weight loss strategies. Um, that being said, rapid weight loss and cutting weight is more prevalent than ever in wrestling and combat sports and and everything. You know, and it's it's part of the, the quote unquote culture as we talked about before. Um, so the problem I think there is there's a huge disconnect between the out culture, which is academia, research, um, and different methods of that, and, and the in culture, which is the actual wrestlers and coaches participating um, in the practice. And so what are, what are the researchers and academics doing wrong that this message is not reaching this population that is specifically trying to address, right? And so what I kind of looked at is my approach to the study is to try and almost bridge the gap between a quantitative, very scientific laden literature of saying cutting weight is bad into a more autoethnographic sense where I can tell a story. I'm a wrestler. I'm part of this culture. Here's my experience and here's my analysis of you know what is going on currently with rapid weight loss and cutting weight and hopefully overall we can move that agenda away from the dangerous rapid weight loss strategies that i think um a lot of people don't know about and a lot of people in the culture preach you know um part of my research too is i found that even though a lot of these um conclusions and a lot of these results instruct people that consult physicians and dietitians about rapid weight loss strategies. Um, I think, and I can't remember specifically the number, but it's upwards of 70% of athletes get cutting weight instruction from their peers and their coaches who are not physicians or dietitians. And even then going to a physician or a dietitian. Why would I listen to a physician and dietitian that doesn't know what cutting weight is? I mean, that that's it too. And you know, you got to find the person that understands it, which I think is unique because most physicians and dietitians, unless they are specifically related to combat sports, are be like, well, you shouldn't do this, period. Like, right. Yeah, it's bad. So it's yeah, kind of like a catch-22. Yeah. And so that's where the UFC 
did a, a great job in their recruiting and in their hiring process. They got um, Clint, Clint Wattenberg, who is a former wrestler at Cornell and assistant wrestling coach, sport dietitian from okay. Cornell, who he's part of the culture, right? He, he, did the, he did wrestling. He competed at the national level. He uh, started to fight. And, again, so he's part of the culture, and now he has his dietitian um, uh, license, I guess um, is the right word. And so he does a great job, in my opinion, of bridging the gap and, and communicating with these athletes on here's what you have done and here's, yes, what's been successful for you or may not have been successful, um, but here's what I can provide as a resource. And it's not everything you're doing wrong. It's here's how we can change that and slowly move towards a healthier or a more optimal functioning weight loss strategy type of thing. Um, Do you think to change culture or at least to kind of adapt, like you, you kind of alluded to it there, you know, and like not necessarily going in and being like, this is wrong and you can't do this. Cause I think that immediately puts everybody's defensive mechanisms yeah. up, you know, I feel like there's a couple ways to go about it. There's the, <laughs> there's the way of basically doing that. There's a way of like exposing it. So it becomes like a national on its own scale, like problem, you know, that oh. people recognize, yeah. or do you think it can be done through like education and science or, you know, and I, I'd say that last one and all of this, like, for being so ingrained and it's worked in quotes yeah. um, for so many people at such a highest levels and they, you know, they've got it done and obviously there's gold medal winners and you yeah. look at them and you'd think they're the healthiest people in the world just because of how, you know, they look, um, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts? Well, it, I mean, changing culture is hard, right? The definition of the culture is that they have a, a shared value and experience, right? So it's, and as far as you said, something drastic happened, you know, in 1998, three collegiate wrestlers died. Like, and, and so a lot of rule change and restrictions and, and things have come, come in place due to that. Um, and that in itself has reduced a lot of the uh, rapid weight loss strategies or the rules that have been implemented because of that have been successful to a degree. But, you know, as, as a collegiate wrestler myself, as a firsthand knowledge and as doing research, rapid weight loss and cutting weight still happens on a huge magnitude across all of wrestling, at least in North America. Um, so that being said, rule changes and literature and whatever else have gone so far. And, and that's as far as they have gone, right? So um, what's going to change the culture is creating influence within the culture itself, um, reaching high-level coaches, um, explaining them, or at least talking, having this conversation on rapid weight loss strategies and technique and, and um, changing the leader's um, values or at least allowing them to have a different insight into why a value should change um, is going to be, I think, one of the, key parts into changing that you know so it's 
talking to coaches and helping them understand the dangers of rapid weight loss or how to go about it a little bit better. And then they, if athletes are getting their information from their coaches, you know, the coaches can disseminate better information. And so that, that's kind of the tree of influence or the different quote unquote discourse that we can talk about that leads itself into a better uh, innovation into the culture. And, and so, I mean, and again, I don't have any of the answers on how to do this or what the best, I don't know, situation is, but, sure. um, but I think that writing what I am writing and, and influencing how I can is a step in the right direction. Um, because, you know, you can take away a lot of, uh, in my opinion, improper training strategies and cutting weight and uh -huh. methodologies. And you take a lot of that away from risking athlete safety. You can take a lot of suffering away from athletes because uh, for those of you that have not cut weight, cutting weight sucks. Um, <laughs> it's not a fun process. Um, and we can change an attitude around, you know, cutting weight yields more commitment. Cutting weight, you know, makes you tougher. Cutting weight is going to make you bigger at your weight class and therefore you're going to have an athletic advantage. I'm like, ooh, and again, I kind of think what is the research behind that and the research is, yeah. Right. right. So it's like, it's a, a different perspective and it's a way to kind of change traditional thought and value around something that is a pretty ingrained practice in most all weight class sports. Makes sense. Yeah. But like you said, it's, it's very different because of each population that you work with, right? Professional athlete has a lot of different luxuries with six months in between fights or, or two or three months in between tournaments versus collegiate athlete making weight once or twice a week and rebounding and weight cycling 10 pounds every time. You know, it's on top of a professional athlete's commitment and time into managing their weight with student athletes, time and commitment to manage their weight are very different, you know? So right. it's hugely multifaceted and hugely interesting. And I think that's why I'm investigating it and investigating research. I like it. Um, anything else you wanted to cover in regards to your, your thesis? Oh man. Um, as of right now, I think that's, that's as far as I can or could get into it. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. But, but it's been a very interesting journey. Like I said, kind of moving from athlete to coach to coach researcher and looking at every problem through different lens, you know, as an athlete, you start to question and problemize these strategies, you know, why am I doing this thing that sucks so much that may or may not help me to coach of, is this the best thing that I should have my athletes doing? You know, if I truly believe a healthier athlete is a better athlete, why am I prescribing this thing that is a decrement to health? Um, and then looking at the research is, a lot of reading and a lot of digesting and synthesizing. Well, you got some time for it now, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, that is that is something I definitely have time for reading. Well, kind of in closing, then, uh, if people wanted to reach out to you if they're interested in this, uh, 
or potentially gain some access to all the research you have been reading. Um, you mentioned again off camera, but you recently started a blog. Where yeah. can people follow you? Where can people contact you? Where can people find out more? Um, yeah, so about I'm not huge on the whole, you know, social media and everything, but uh, two places you can contact me if you want to contact me directly, uh, just through Gmail, which is a Friedman dot strong at gmail.com um that's you know an email that i check regularly and then on instagram it's strong underscore a dot f is my my handle there so perfect yeah well sir appreciate you being on and sharing some knowledge and we'll look forward to having you on again here in the near future thank you for having me thank you for imploring and being curious about what i'm curious about of course always it's part of the beauty of the podcast. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Pressed. Go to clinicallypressed.com for full show notes and links to everything that was covered in this episode. While you're there, you have access to all of our episodes, insights, and shorts. You can find Clinically Pressed on YouTube and any podcast outlet. If you could give us a rating, thumbs up, or review on how we are doing, we would greatly appreciate it. To get more free content delivered to your inbox, sign up for the Total Athletic Therapy newsletter. You'll get direct links to all new Clinically Pressed episodes, reviews on some of the latest research in health and performance, and links to related podcasts and other items meant to help you make the complicated simple and optimize performance. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.